Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I'm excited to talk to Tony Carklins. He's the owner of Time Bicycles. If any of you have been around the bike industry as long as I have, you probably have fond memories of the French brand Time, first with pedals, then carbon forks, and later full frames and bicycles. It's been a brand that's been around the industry for many, many years. Tony's going to tell the story with a little bit of the history of the brand, which I found fascinating, and what's in store for the future. You might be surprised to learn that Time has a rich manufacturing history, originally in France, but later in Slovakia, utilizing some of the most advanced carbon fiber manufacturing technologies and techniques available today. Tony is looking to bring that manufacturing additionally to the United States, so I was thrilled to talk to him about this ambitious project and learn more about their ADHX 45 gravel bike. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Pillar Performance. This year, I'm focusing more and more on everything to do with my cycling performance. My nighttime routine and sleep has become a crucial part of being able to consistently perform in my training. Pillar's triple magnesium has been formed by leading heart rate variability researcher, Dr. Dan Plews, and used by many athletes. Pillar has recently signed on as the official micronutrition partner of Israel Premier Tech in the Pro Tour. It's become integral to my end of day routine. Taking it 30 minutes before sleep, it's a little scoop in a bit of water before bed each night to guarantee my body spends as much time in REM and deep sleep as possible. Pillar uses high dose of glycinate magnesium, activating the parasympathetic nervous system and ensuring you fall asleep and stay in the restorative sleep phases longer. The data from my Apple Watch and my athletic app each morning speaks volumes to what Pillar Triple Magnesium is doing for my recovery. A higher HRV and more closely linked REM and deep sleep cycles are doing wonders for my recovery. If you'd like to try Pillar today, head on over to pillarperformance.shop or for U.S. listeners, head to thefeed.com slash pillar and enter the code CRAIG for 15% off. That's CRAIG, C-R-A-I-G, for 15% off all first-time purchases. With that support behind us, let's jump right into my conversation with Tony. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, as as a fan of the sport and someone who's been around the sport from my bike shop days in college till now, I'm excited to talk about Time Bicycles. It's such a storied brand in the industry. And having spoken to you a little bit offline, your journey to get there, I think, is going to be fascinating for the listener to learn about. And ultimately, we want to talk about the new gravel models you've got for 2024. Sounds great. Where do you want to start? Let's start off just by a little bit of your background. Where are you located and how did you get into the sport of cycling and what led to you working in the bike industry? All right. I, uh, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, Arkansas is the new hotbed of cycling globally now. So uh, I've been in the bike industry here for about 40 years. I uh, started to work in the neighborhood bike shop in the early 80s, uh, became a bike shop owner in the mid 80s, and I ran two retail stores here until 99, 2000. So I almost made it 20 years in bike retail here. 
And I decided that I wanted to stay in the bike industry, but I was kind of done with retail. I'd, I'd taken my turn there. And so I started traveling to the European trade shows, uh, looking for bike brands that were established in Europe that maybe needed help in the United States. Um, and did a few small distribution and agent deals with some you know, really neat, small artisan Italian brands. And kind of one deal led to the next. And then uh, late 99 or early 2000, I was introduced to this brand that I had never heard of and no one in America had at that time. It was called Orbea. And it was a tiny little uh, Basque company that was moving out of kind of mass production bikes and they wanted to get into high performance and they wanted to get their brand on the Tour de France and they wanted to see if they could produce, you know, a, a leading global brand and started as a distributor for them for a couple of years. It went really well. Uh, and then we built it into a joint venture. And I ran that joint venture as the managing director of the Americas until 2014. And we built Orbea in that time to, you know, leading European brand selling in the United States and a true global player. And it was a really interesting time in the bike industry because uh, I started in it right before the carbon fiber boom happened. Um, yeah. when, I, when I went to work for Orbea, premium bikes were made out of really lightweight steel uh, or uh, even, and we advanced into really lightweight aluminum, like Columbus Starship and some of the really cool two-pound aluminum frames. And they were light and they were fast, but they rode like crap because they were so stiff. Right. Yeah. When carbon fiber comes into the forks and all of a sudden it made the aluminum bikes ride a lot better. And so uh, watch, watch carbon fiber hit the bike industry. And it really took the industry by storm in around 2003, 2004. There was this moment where all the best bikes in the Tour de France were aluminum or titanium. And within 12 months, it all went carbon fiber. And it really changed the bike industry a lot because the bike industry and the bike brands, all those history brands that you know of, they were born as metal shops, right? They could yeah. cut and weld and bend. But when carbon hit, everybody was like, what is this stuff? Where do I get it? And how do I do it fast? And so I lived in this moment where I saw all that bike production all through the United States and Europe come down in the premium categories and get shipped to Asia because they could make carbon fiber. Yeah, I was going to ask you from an Orbea perspective, like how did they solve that problem? They knew they had to get into carbon fiber. The same thing at the same time. You know, yeah. Orbea was, Orbea is, they take fast, smart decisions quick. So we were right there at the very start of carbon fiber. I remember there was this moment in America where we had a warehouse full of carbon fiber before it was really hot, like a couple of months before it was hot. And then Cannondale went into bankruptcy. And then something happened at light speed, which spiked the cost of titanium raw material. And then like a month of fearing I would never be able to sell this inventory, getting the cover of Bicycling Magazine being sold out for two years. You know? <laughs> that was some of the Orbea magic that happened during that time. I love so, it. Uh, you know, when carbon hit, it just it hit hard and it changed the industry and it changed where and how bikes were made. Um, and it was a it was a boom moment for us at Orbea for sure. We 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 went through the roof, you know, because we were there, one of the very first with real product and real availability. Yeah. So I had a great run with with Orbea. Um, they acquired the rest of the company from us in 2014, and then I decided that um, I wanted to get into manufacturing because I, I noticed at that moment in 2014, 15, and 16 that everybody was sort of cooking in the same kitchen, you know. 
It was yeah. everything started to look alike again, and it was just different colors and graphics and marketing campaigns. So I said, okay, if I'm going to stay in the bike industry, I want to get into manufacturing. That seems like to... a big leap, right? So you, but you know, I, I, I've been in the industry a long time, been in a lot of the factories. I mean, I saw it, you know. Yeah. I'm not an engineer um, now. I almost am, but um, at that point, I just I knew that I knew that there was very little chance of success if you just went to Asia and did the same thing again. You know, yeah. I've seen too many people try to start their own brand um, based on just desire of having a brand and no real tech or no real you know capabilities. And, and they all kind of petered out the same way. And did you see the opportunity being, hey, if I stand up a manufacturing facility, I've got enough connection in, in the industry that some brand may want to come to me for manufacturing. I'm thinking back to like Frank the Welder's shop and you'd have you know, Yeti throw him some work. I've never interested in OEM business yeah. because you, know, you, you do all the work and you get none of the room. <laughs> yeah. You can't explain to anybody what you do for a living because you can't point to anything. Yeah. I'm, I was more interested in, okay, I think the way that, that, that this can really work is if you take it from raw material all the way through to the same, right? Okay. If you own all of that, because, you know, when you have a bike made in Asia, you have it made in a carbon fiber factory, and then they send it to a paint factory, and then they send it to an assembly factory, and then they put it into a box and they ship it into the United States. So you pay duties and freight and tariff and all that stuff. Yeah. And then it's sold to a distributor, and then it's sold to a retailer. And then it's sold to the consumer. And, you know, you have this, you know, no one has any real piece of the pie, you know? Yeah. The, the only people making the money here are the shipping companies and the governments, you know? <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, let's, let's break that. Let's see if we can take it from raw material all the way, you know, through selling it to a dealer. Okay. And so uh, after my time with Orbea, I went to work with a group in California that was attempting to do this uh, with golf technology, a lot of golf production in the San Diego area. And I learned, you know, during that year that very difficult to do manufacturing in Southern California. It was, it was a great, great learning moment for it. Um, and so did not work there, but after I departed, I was able to acquire the Guru Bicycle Factory in Montreal. Gotcha, we okay. We located it in Arkansas, got some government grants and brought in some investors for this. And we, uh, the, the project there, we created this company called HIA Velo, which was going to be, you know, mass production of pre-preg carbon fiber bicycles, you know, made the same way that the best bike brands were making them in Asia, but making them here. And when you, did you not acquire the Guru brand, you just acquired the means of manufacturing at that point? I just acquired the manufacturing assets. Yeah. And was that mm -hmm. just uh, tooling, machinery, et cetera? Or were you getting... Cutting tables. It was yeah. everything you needed to do. Gotcha. Right? I mean, okay. everything. You know, and so it, it gave us a great, it gave us a great start. Uh, it was a beautiful project. We launched, you know, six months later, the Allied Cycle Works brand, and that hit hard. You know, it resonated just yeah. perfectly at that moment because it truly made an America product. Um, we we did it right. We did it well. Um, beautiful project. And that company got acquired by the Walton family in one of their groups um, that owns uh, the Rafa cycling brand. And was that acquiring the brand and the manufacturing facility? They, they took it all and they okay. moved it out of Little Rock and they put it in Northwest Arkansas. And now it's part of the uh, the cycling empire that they're building up there. Sure. And so I stayed here in Little Rock after that and looking for my next opportunity. And during the early stages of the pandemic, I learned that the Rosanil group who had recently acquired time 
was looking for a new owner for it. And I'm like, wow, I really want that because I want I want their factory because I knew that they had the oldest and the largest scale carbon fiber bike factory in Europe. Can we and, can we pause for a second, Tony, and just explain the history very briefly of the Time brand? Because it's not yes. lost on me, like how important that had been over the last 30 years. But I'd just love to hear your words and understanding of like how time fit into the bike industry. Yeah, yeah. So time uh, was established in France in 1987. And Roland Catan was the founder of it. And Roland Catan married a woman whose father was the inventor of the modern ski biking. And God. he owned a company called Look. Yeah, sure. And Look had just introduced a bicycle pedal that was clipless. Yeah. And Roland was around this, and he was kind of part of the company. And I guess at some point there was some family dispute that happened because Roland believed that a clip-in bicycle pedal needed to have some kind of rotation. Because if you were locked into one place, you would have ankle, knee, some kind of problems. Yeah. And so I guess the father-in-law didn't like that. And Roland left look. <laughs> went across the street and opened time. Amazing. With a pedal that had rotation. <laughs> this is filling in so many gaps for me. As I mentioned offline, I had a friend who was like a diehard time pedal fan and like the ski binding technology. I'm now all visualizing it in my head. Yeah. And so I don't know how, I don't know how Roland's wife made this all work with the family. <laughs> they split and they made a competitor. Um, and, you know, time, you know, was a very fast-moving brand globally the second he did it. It was, it was styled perfectly. Everybody believed in the rotation. They were off to the races. Um, then somewhere in the late 80s to maybe 92, 93, Roland became friends with some of the people that had started TVT Carbon Fiber. And TVT was, you know, a uh, French company that had done some of the very first, you know, carbon tube, aluminum lug bikes. They were briefly in the tour, but the technology wasn't really stable enough yet to really have true tour riders on it. But you, you, I think you saw maybe some of the Greg LeMond years, he might be on a special carbon fiber bike uh, with some sponsor's name on it. That was a TVT thing. So the time people got involved with him um, and they opened up a project to make a carbon fiber fork because they saw the problem in the bike industry of all these lightweight aluminum bikes using steel forks or sometimes even aluminum forks, which were super jarring. Yeah. And they believed that they could they could make a better riding aluminum bike by doing a carbon fork. So Mario Cipollini, Marco Pantani, anybody of who's who in that, you know, in that era, whatever bike brand they were riding, it had a time fork on. And from what I've been told, uh, they were making about a hundred thousand carbon fiber forks a year. I mean, they they were they were the player there. Yeah. And of course, look got into the fork business as well. Those two really <laughs> kind of got it, you know. For a long time. So time then moved into bicycle manufacturing in the late nineties. They wanted to do a full carbon fiber bike, um, and then in the early two thousands they signed with this little team called Quickstep, and we had riders like Tom Boonen and Paolo Bettini. Uh, you know, and they won the Olympics and they won the world championships and they won Perry Roubaix and they were just, they were killing it in 2004, five and six. I mean, they were, 
They were the, you know, pinnacle of technology really being made in Europe when everybody else had just left for China. They, they were killing it. Um, and then I guess from what I've been told, the Pro Tour got really expensive when the big American brands came in. You know, when you saw Specialized come in and take over Quick Step, and Cannondale was in there first, I think. Giant got in there. Uh, Trek obviously got in there. And so Time became a brand that, you know, truly couldn't afford the Tour de France. Anymore. Yeah. And so uh, they kept developing products. They believed in their resin transfer molding technology. They believed in European manufacturing. But, you know, they started to kind of hit harder times maybe in 2000. 12, 13, 14. And then Roland passed away on a bike ride in 2000, late 2015, oh, early 2016. Oh, man. And did they, ever, did they ever diversify into mountain bike products or did they always stay focused on the road no, sport? There's, you know, we, we have all the historical stuff and, you know, they did a couple little things and they made their own wheels for one model, but they didn't really ever get in the wheel business. Yeah. Um, I've got a few time carbon fiber handlebars. I don't believe that a real mountain bike frame was ever truly produced by them, but yeah. you know, he, he was pretty true to the cause. I mean, he, he was a road cyclist. He was a drop bar cyclist. He, um, he, he, he protected his brand really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he, he didn't, he didn't go with, you know, the, the, the trend of the week, like some of the bike companies do. And then did yeah. the Rosignol group, uh, purchase it after his passing then? They purchased it, you know, so he passed away. Company was in shambles because he was the race car driver of the company, right? Yeah. And and so big problems there. But Rosniel stepped in. Um, they they did an acquisition of everything. They reinvested in the company. Um, they built out both the France factory and the sub factory that's in Slovakia. Um, and they were really building it for big growth. And I, I believe their plan was to to put um, – they, they bought a few other bike brands as well and to inject those brands into their ski dealerships for summer business in Europe. I think it was their master plan. The, the, and, the plan that many a bike shop owner, many a bike brand has theorized over the years will work perfectly. You know, it, it makes sense, but at yeah. the end of the day, you know, a consumer purchasing a $10,000 bike doesn't want to buy from a ski shop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, nothing against the ski shops, but he wants he wants to buy it from a passionate, you know, cycling store. So that didn't work so well. And then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, that's when we were told, hey, Rosniel's looking for a new owner from time. Yeah. And, and I interrupted you right when you were saying what really attracted you to the opportunity was the fact that there was a factory involved. And that's how we got it from Rosniel, because we were the people that wanted the factory. You know, I think there were a lot of people that wanted the time brand. Right? Sure. Because yeah. there's a playbook. You take a great brand like that, a halo European brand. You go to Asia, you build a new bike line. Boom, you're done. And Rosignol, I don't think wanted that to happen. You know, it's a proud French brand. There are a lot of people working in factories. Um, they wanted they wanted somebody to come in and take over the factory. I had just come through this project at Allied and yeah. lived in a pre-trade factory. And so I'm like, I want that factory, you know. Yeah, and you were mentioning offline some of the nuances in the approach pre-preg versus another way of manufacturing that attracted you to the yeah, time I mean, process. Yeah, I, I, I knew what their tech was, but I had never been in their building previously, and and I knew the quality that was coming out of that factory. 
And so when when we were able to acquire that, you know, at the same time, SRAM bought the pedal and shoe business. So we actually broke time into two pieces. Okay. So that was a perfect fit for SRAM to take that. And then we didn't have to be in the pedal business. Did that just sort so, of happen to work out timing wise that I imagine they wanted to sell the whole thing in one fell swoop? I think they wanted to sell the whole thing in one fell swoop, but it's hard to do that because those two businesses are totally different, totally different Very, factory, totally different yeah. customers, totally different rules. And so when, when SRAM stepped in with interest of that, it was perfect. And that's when, when it all kind of came together. And, uh, you know, it's a strange time because when we bought it in the pandemic, we couldn't even go to the factory for a visit because this is Americans travel into Europe. We were on lockdown. Yeah. So a lot of faith in there. And luckily we, we got a, a good investment group behind this that, that also believed in, in us and the vision of what we wanted to do with time. Uh, and we pulled it off, but we, we bought it because we wanted that factory. We wanted that technology, you know, what, what Roland spent, you know, 25 years developing in that factory is resin transfer molding and lost wax cores. And that is the way that aerospace and automotive carbon fiber products are made. You know, the bike industry is pre-preg. Prepreg is a very interesting way to make products, and there's some neat things you can do with prepreg. But automotive and aerospace would never use prepreg because resin transfer molding gives you complete control of the structure. You end up with a with a, a structure that has zero voids in it. It's cosmetically perfect, and that you can blend whatever you want to into the carbon fiber sleeves because they're not impregnated. And so this one factory that they had built in Slovakia initially as a fork factory had built its way up to being largest carbon fiber bike factory in Europe. And with the technology that was above and beyond what anybody else in the world was doing. When you talk about that, and I'm sure it's difficult to express it in layman's terms, but when you think about the different design opportunities and possibilities with prepreg versus this type of carbon manufacturing, what type of opportunities for performance as it translates to riders does this technology lend itself to? Well, you know, the, the biggest difference in resin transfer molding is it's not, it's not bladder molded. There's no internal pressure there that is squeezing all those layers of carbon fiber into one structure. So in resin transfer molding, we start with a wax core that is, you know, an exact interior core to the structure. And then we wrap the carbon fiber sleeves over those cores. We set them in the tools. When, and when we close the tool, you have steel surface on the outside, hard wax surface on the inside. So two hard surfaces. And then you inject the resin and the hardener through the tool at the same time under high pressure. And when you do that, the resin fills 100% of all available space between the two hard surfaces. So you can't have any voids. That's why airplane wings are resin transfer molded, because you can't have a void in an airplane wing. Because a void is a, is a weaker part of the part if a, a void, void exists. Is a bubble, it's a fold, it's a wrinkle, it's a drip. It's, you know, because when you're dealing with prepreg, you have this hard tool on the outside, you have a bladder on the inside, 
And then you have all these sticky layers somebody is hand put together, kind of like almost like paper mache in some ways, yeah. right? And each one of those is a sticky, challenging layer. These go on just right, right? And then you put that into the tool and you blast this pressure on the inside and it just squeezes the heck out of everything. And that's the structure you're left with. Yep. But resin transfer molding, hard tool on the inside, hard on the outside, and a flow through of the resin that makes it a perfect structure. And so when you have that, you have a, 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 a product that is a, a stronger and more durable product for sure. Right, less chance of anything happening to the structure for sure. Also, cosmetically perfect. So now you can actually show fibers, which you don't see on carbon fiber bikes anymore, because pre-prayed structures are ugly. So you yeah. have to paint them to make them look nice. But on this, it comes out perfect. And even the inside of the structure, the inside of our bikes is as cosmetically perfect as the outside, because it can only be that way. Yeah. And then in these braids, you know, a lot of these things have 244 different, you know, threads through. We can blend in any modulus that we want. We can mix in fibers like Dyneema. We can mix in Vectran fibers. We, we have unlimited recipe of what we could do for the actual sleeves themselves. And what, what are those additional elements? What are the benefits of those additional elements? Everybody's familiar with the different moduluses, right? You can take out weight, you can add stiffness. You know, the one that we've had the most fun with the last two years is bringing Dyneema into it. Dyneema has got kind of a wonder material that really came out of the sailing industry. It's a polypropylene fiber that's lighter than carbon fiber, but you can't destroy it. So we can weave this into critical areas where there could be catastrophic failure, and this will keep that structure from ever breaking down. And so we brought that in a lot and on our first gravel bike, we introduced that into our structure. Yeah, I was going to say, that and seems like a natural thing. We're, we're using more and more and more with it. And you can't use too much with it because if you use too, if your ratio of Dyneema to the carbon fiber is too high, the bike doesn't ride right. Dyneema doesn't have the riding characteristics of a high modulus carbon fiber. But when you put it in small doses in strategic places, you've made a stronger and safer bike. Got it. Now, I appreciate this detour into the tech because we were going to come back around to it in the gravel bike, but I think it sets the stage really nicely. So if we're going back chronologically, 2020, 2021, it seems like you've acquired the, the, the brand, the facility. Were models continuing to be pushed out at that point? And then how, when did you sort of reintroduce what I imagine to be your new vision for time bicycles out there in the world? You know, it, it played out differently than we thought, because when we bought the company, our plan was we were going to take it to ground, and we were going to redo everything, and we were going to relaunch it perfectly. And we bought it in that moment in the pandemic where we were all going to die. You know, there, yeah. there was this moment that, that it was doom and gloom, and then a couple of months later, everybody decided to go buy a bike. Yeah, we're not, we're not dead, so we might as well go ride a bike. Yeah, we're not dead, so let's go buy a new bike. And so our plan was kind of spoiled because we were one of the only operational factories yeah. in Europe. Everybody needed everything from us. And I'm like, no, we're going to be redoing all this stuff. And they're like, no, we need bikes now. So we turned it on hard. 
You know, we turned that factory on harder than it had ever been turned on. And were you kicking out because road bikes at that point, presumably? We were kicking out road bikes like crazy. And we were trying to get to gravel, but you know, we had just tons and tons and tons of orders for road bikes because, you know, you couldn't get them. They were stuck in Asia. People were sold out. Yeah. You know, and you know, we're a factory that we, we make them every single day, you know? So you know, the first 18 months of us owning this company, it was like we were trying to repair the plane mid-flight. You know, we were just going crazy. You know, we were trying to get to new because Rosignol didn't really push new because yeah. they were in the selling phase, right? So you're yeah. not going to invest in product like that. And so we had slightly dated product and we needed as much of it as possible right now for sales while we're redeveloping. So just <laughs> now, you know, in 2024, we're back to our plan of, of key new model introductions. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you know, during that time frame with everything running so fast, it sounds like you wouldn't have even had time to rethink market positioning, the brand. It was more people love time. It's a storied brand as we've just talked about, and people are gonna buy the product. Yeah, the second we bought it, man, the love just kind of flowed in through emails. You know, everybody's like, Oh God, thank God, you know, cycling people have the time brand back, you know, and and yeah, the love for the time brand is amazing. You know, I can't tell you how many people have sent an email with a picture of their time VRX, VXRS, Paolo Bettini edition to say, I own a hundred bikes and this is my all time favorite. <laughs> you know, people love it. I mean, Roland did a great job building a really beautiful brand. He really, he, he, he always did the right thing. Yeah. Always took the high road. You know, not a lot of people in the bike industry can really say that. For sure. You mentioned Roland's love of the sport of road cycling, and it doesn't sound like prior to you much, if any, emphasis was put on the gravel market. When you decided to move in, or correct me if I'm wrong, certainly. Well, there, there were some weird things in there. Like one of the things that when, when we did the acquisition and we got the trademark list, Roland owns the global trademark for all road. Okay. <laughs> we were looking at that going, oh my gosh, <laughs> what was he going to do with that? You know, so he saw something, you know, maybe he was, maybe he had a, a pedal plan for it, but you know, he, you know, he was pretty deep in the Belgian cycling scene. Okay. And so uh, he, he was, he was working on something there for sure. Gotcha. You weren't handed any gravel models. So it took you. Yeah. Took you to what twenty twenty two to introduce the first uh, ADHX? Yeah, we did. We introduced that um, midway through twenty twenty two. Now I'm I'm curious. Like obviously, you had your imprint on that model with the, alongside your designers. How did you envision the gravel market at that point and times the the time the people who are appreciating the time brands vision for what a time gravel bike would look like? Well, that was our first rule with the ADHX is we wanted to make a bike that would appeal to time owners, right? We weren't going to yeah. go out and make some bike that had phrase on forks everywhere and for camping on it. That's not time, right? You need to go buy a Surly if you're going to do that. We wanted to do an all-road bike for a time owner. And we wanted to also make sure that it worked with all-road drivetrains because we wanted to be a, a multi-surface road bike. Gotcha. Yeah. We called it fast gravel. Um, and and we introduced that before a lot of these wide drive train one by systems really became legitimized in the bike industry. You know, 
our requirement is let's get the biggest tire possible in here that will still take a 52 chain ring, you know? Yeah. And will not have an obscenely long chain stake. So it will ride like a road bike, but it'll allow you to do multi-service. Yeah, I've had this conversation before where it's very interesting when you talk about constraints and what you're able to do. And as you're articulating the desire to have a 52th chain ring in there and ride a two-by drivetrain and a road-specific drivetrain, it's understandable where you end up spec-wise. Yeah. I mean, so that, that's, those were the limitations we put on it. And so then we launched it into the market. You know, and at that moment, anything anybody launched into the market was going to do well because the market was just consuming all by product. But quickly, we learned that nobody wanted our ADHX with a one-by drivetrain. Everybody who was buying, because we, we made, we, we took an assumption that 50-50, one by two by. Yeah. Yeah. And it was 99% and 1% was the reality of after six months of this. So everybody, they, they were buying pure road groups and they were running you know, 35, maybe 38 C tires. Yeah. It's interesting when you think about that 2022 timeframe, because I do think the, the consumer base had started to really sort of pick a camp, if you will. And they were picking either I want a, a fast gravel bike or I want something more on the adventure side. And there were distinct camps starting to emerge even back then. Yeah. Yeah, there were. And, uh, you know, so we got a lot of feedback maybe nine months after launch. Oh, we can't get this 42 tire, and everybody racing on Unbound this year is running a 42. And then, you know, we were also at that moment where the interior rim widths were changing like crazy. Yeah. So even if you were putting a 38C tire on there, but this new wheel coming out from head had a 26 internal measurement, it was measuring a 42. You know, so we ran into that fun. But everybody else ran into that, that fun at the same time. Yeah. So we decided that we would open the next project to do a, a wider, you know, tire version of the ADHX um, because we thought that was truly where the market was moving to. And what we learned in all of that is it all just comes down to the drivetrain. And the second we launched the ADHX 45. And we explained it was built for wide drivetrains, and it was built for, you know, it won't take Ultegra, Durace, Campagnolo drivetrains on there. That We had this boom of sales in our existing ADHX, because all of a sudden, people really understood it. Yeah. Hey, this, is, this is as much of a multi-surface bike as I can have, and it be a road bike. This is really a pure gravel bike. You know? Right. And, and, and so for now, it's crystal clear. We didn't really expect that to happen. We assumed the 45 was what everybody was going to want, but now it's crystallized for us where there are three for us. There's pure road. There is multi-surface, fast gravel. Yeah. And there is, you know, I, I don't want to call it pure gravel, but wider tire gravel. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting forcing, forcing function because I think a lot of consumers develop a love and appreciation for a particular brand. And then, so they're in the time family, they're in the time world, and then they're looking at your two models and they're asking themselves, what type of gravel rider am I? Where, where do I live? What type of terrain am I on? And which one of these two models fits their riding style and ambitions? What I think we've learned is it's more important around the drivetrain than it really is around three or four millimeter width change on the tires. That's what the customer seems to really care about, you know? 
Interesting. So on the on the the ADHX forty five, will that still run a two by? Yeah, it'll run a two by, but you have to use a wide version of two. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you're you're using these these gear ratios that true road cyclists don't really they still want their fifty two ring on there, right? Yeah. And, and when you move into the ADH forty five, you got to deal with all all the new systems from SRAM and the new ones from the GRX system, and it, it does it does really seem to be that the 45 falls more to the MTB crowd and the ADHX falls more to the road cyclist that just wants to do a little bit of ground. Yeah. As you and then, it, and then in Europe they use the ADHX as the fat road tire time. Okay. And would you so, would, does it ride sort of as if it, say you have road tires on there 32s or 35s? Is it ride like an endurance road bike? Would you would you yeah. suggest? And that's yeah. where a lot of people have kind of put it. Yeah, you know, because you can you can build up, you know, with those Vittoria thirty four C tires and nice carbon wheels, you can have a you know fourteen and a half pound thirty four C tire road bike that's just super fun to ride. Yeah, super fun to ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just out with a a buddy I hadn't seen in a while and saw he was a like hardcore roadie and saw him rolled up on some thirty eight Cs, nice carbon wheels and. He was like, man, this bike is, he's like, it's a revelation. He's like, I've never been happier road riding than I have been on these 38 C's. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Super interesting. As you, you know, you had the, the ADHX out there in the market. Obviously you were getting some feedback from riders that led to the tire and drivetrain decisions on the 45. Were there any other elements of the frame design that taking the opportunity to think, Hey, we're now getting 45s in there. People are going to take this on gnarlier terrain. Do we need to do anything different, or was it really about upsizing and you know configuring the drivetrain? You know, there were some people that were pushing us for adventure bikes and stuff, but it's just we're we're, we're doing our best to stay true to time. We're not an adventure bike company. Yeah, we're, we're a high performance carbon fiber bike company. We, we want to we want to keep it that way. So I think I think the forty five, at least what we see of today's gravel market, is as far as we need to go. Yeah, you know. Because there are other things that the Time brand needs to do. We know we have to get back into the aero road bike development. We have to get back into endurance road development. We've got other projects there. So I think that, you know, while we'll continue to evolve the ADHX family, I think we sort of have our two models in there. Yeah. When you think about it, you mentioned sort of unbound. When you think about a competitive race bike, is there anything that the ADHX 45 has that doesn't put it as a gravel race bike other than the choice of drivetrain that you're you have to yeah, make because yeah. of so I mean, it, it was it was really built for that type of application yeah you know yeah it is it is a go fast you know wide tire gravel bike yeah you know it's it's a race bike i mean we 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 did some really tight tolerances on there the things we had to do to get the chain stays you know, in the seat tube, and just just to the point where they'd be right on the edge of giving the proper amount of clearance, and 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 truly be a high performance ride. We we couldn't have done it any tighter than we did. Not yeah, that, yeah, you know? yeah. And when you think about the ideal rider for these types of bikes, um, are you you know are the head tubes taller? Are they or are they still sort of real Euro race style geometry? We, we are upper middle there. Okay. You know, on on this particular family, when we, yeah, well, when we bought time, there was no integrated front ends at all. So we had to re the first project we did was to do to bring integration in. When we did that to all of our existing product line, we increased that 
head tube height just a bit more for the for the mature American market. Yeah, and, and when with integration, we, we, you're talking we about turn it into a specialized Roubaix. We did, we didn't go there, but we brought it to a point because I I hate premium bikes with three or four spacers in there or or an upstem. So, yeah. So we, we built it. You know, we engineered it to to sell and to look. Okay, and with that integration, you're referring to putting the cables inside the bar and through the headset yeah, and all that. Yeah, we stuff. got a moment to tweak all the head tube heights when we did that. Yeah, and so we we, we took we took benefit of that we cleaned that because you know, traditionally time is a short head tube bike. I mean, it was the a lot of the design was led by the racers who all want these head head tubes that are this tall. Yeah, you know, but nobody who's actually buying a bike can ever ride. You know, <laughs> exactly. Um, what what's sort of next for time and gravel this year? I imagine you know there's still a lot of people who haven't gotten in front of a time gravel bike. How do people I mean, find the, them? The big thing for time right now is um, our expansion into manufacturing in the United States. Okay, that's our next yeah. big thing. So we announced uh, middle of last year that we acquired a facility in South Carolina, and it's in Spartanburg County. Was it outside and, the bike industry? Something doing carbon fiber in another field? No, um, but it is inside the bubble that BMW built in North America. And BMW's carbon fiber technology is exactly the same as Thomas. Got it. So it's resin transfer molding. So in this one little region of South Carolina, they have the entire global supply chain specific to exactly what time does. Amazing. So we acquired a factory there in this little town called Landrum. It's a 140,000 square foot facility on 30 acres right at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Really cool area. Uh, about, about 30, 45 minutes from Asheville, North Carolina. And we are, um, throughout 2024, moving process by process over. So we'll have a second factory here to support the United States. And at the same time, as we're installing our processes into that factory, we're getting a lot of assistance from um, the state of South Carolina and the University of Clemson and a lot of the um, automotive uh, development tools that were put into place inside of BMW. They do things with resin transfer molding that were light years beyond what Roland ever thought about when he was building his factories in France and Slovakia. And so we've been, for the last six months, doing proof of concept manufacturing there about um, high-pressure resin transfer molding, where similar technology to what we do in our factories now, but under three to five times pressure. And that has the potential to really, uh, has the potential to revolutionize bicycle manufacturing, but certainly advance our product to a point where, beyond what we ever thought possible. When you, when you are able to do resin transfer molding at 35, 45, 50 bar. That is incredibly high pressure. It's going to make a, 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 a structure that is thinner, lighter, and stronger, and also more beautiful than anybody's ever been able to pull out of a carbon fiber tool. So Amazing. we are fully focused on that development and deploying that technology in our new South Carolina factory by the end of this year. That's so exciting to bring back more manufacturing in the United States. And as we heard, that, yeah. that's the really exciting thing, you know, yeah. because the automobile industry invested a lot in resin transfer. BMW, McLaren, 
Aston Martin, Lexus, Audi, I mean, resin transfer molding used in all those brands significantly, Polestar, Volvo, and to take benefit of what they've done there and apply it to bike under the time brand name and being true to, you know, what Roland Catan actually wanted to build out of time. That's, that's our special project that we're really excited about. And I think that I'm a few months away from inviting people such as yourself into the kitchen over there so you can see firsthand what, what's actually about to happen. I love it. Book me a date maybe in July. My sister just moved to Asheville, so I'm planning a trip over there at some point. 30, 45 <laughs> minutes I love it. I love it. And I love this journey you've taken us on in this conversation. Love the time brand, the story. Very much lands with me just the sort of race perspective of the bicycles and the expansion of the ADHX to the ADX 45, just to give riders kind of what they're looking for in terms of the versatility in the time models. So um, yeah, super appreciate it. And for customers looking to get in touch with the brand or get, get a foot over one of these, what's the best way for riders to get in front of a time bicycle? You know, we, our website and the team that we have supporting all lines of communication through that and social media, we're very easy to get in touch with. Okay. I mean, ping us, ping us on Facebook, Instagram, through our website, where we have a team here ready to help. And are you selling direct to consumer at this point? We sell every way possible. We sell direct to consumer. We've got around 150 retailers in the United States. Uh, we've got distributors in 18 countries around the world. Um, so yeah, we're, we're pretty much available in all key markets. Amazing. Thanks again for the time, Tony. My pleasure. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tony as much as I did. I really loved learning the history of the Time Bicycle brand and the future. I think that ADHX 45 model looks super sleek and fast, and I may just start recommending it to a few friends of mine in the market. As always, we appreciate your support. Ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. And big shout out to new sponsor Pillar Performance for contributing to our efforts here at the Gravel Ride Podcast. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.